All right. Uh, welcome to the uh, microservice and serverless observability talk, everybody. Uh, thanks for showing up. My name's Clay Smith. I'm a developer advocate in New Relic. And i um, really excited to be talking about this, especially with the announcements this morning around Fargate and um, Kubernetes for ECS. Um, New Relic, if you don't know us, uh, we have a number of different solutions for monitoring and having analytics around solutions that run in the cloud or on-prem. And because of that, uh, we've been talking to a lot of our customers the past year and a half, and we've seen uh, a massive amount of interest in serverless compute technology, uh, specifically AWS Lambda. And the, the purpose or the inspiration behind this talk was uh, we've seen this pattern over and over again that as people move to um, serverless computing architectures, uh, the focus for this talk later will be specifically Lambda, but just in general, um, a lot of the assumptions and best practices and playbooks for monitoring those workloads in those serverless compute environments, uh, it, it does change. And with that in mind, uh, this talk uh, really tries to get into that a bit, and we'll wrap up uh, with a Lambda case study. Uh, we were running um, headless Chrome and AWS Lambda and learned some interesting performance uh, things around that. And then uh, uh, Marcus Irvin will join us at the end for a Q&A on a, a, recent, um, a recent project um, his team just launched uh, in production. Uh, so to jump um, right in, uh, observability uh, has been discussed a lot, especially if you follow the monitoring people on Twitter. Um, the clearest definition, and, I, and why I think it's important, is that it gets to an idea that's not necessarily monitoring, but it's a good conversation starter. And specifically, uh, it has this focus on how well do we understand uh, the workloads that we're running in the cloud or on-prem from the work that they do. And uh, how good is that, and can we make it better to ultimately uh, make the systems we build and design better as well? And so uh, observability, whether you like the term or not, or just want to call it monitoring, uh, that's not necessarily the, the key point or takeaway. But I think it's a really important discussion, especially as we uh, look at these new software architectures like Lambda or consider or try and build uh, some sort of next generation system. Um, so observability, I, I think, is really nice for at least starting the conversation around how well do you understand what's actually going on um, in these environments. Uh, related, and I think also really important, is this idea of instrumentation. Uh, so we have workloads running in some service, whether it's a traditional VM or something next generation like Fargate. Um, how do we understand what that code is actually doing uh, when it's actually responding to an active request? And instrumentation, not a new idea at all, um, but it just gets this idea of what events do we want to measure in code to understand what that code is actually doing in production uh, responding to a real request. And so uh, these, this idea of observability and instrumentation I think is coming up uh, a lot more, especially when we talk about Lambda and uh, kind of container orchestration systems, uh, because it gets to really important ideas of actually understanding uh, what's going on in the first place. Um, the agenda for this talk and, and where, we'll going, where we're going to go here, um, uh, the first bit is really a discussion of a lot of the architectures we see different customers moving to. Um, since this is a serverless track talk, um, a lot of that uh, should be familiar. Um, we uh, will go then into um, kind of the role different data types play in understanding new architectures and potentially how that's different from older legacy architectures. Um, we'll end up with some just kind of higher level requirements. 
Um, and then from there, uh, and this is kind of uh, the more fun part, we're actually going to try and put some of those in practice uh, looking at a, a large lambda function. And then uh, lastly, uh, we'll be talking with, uh, with Marcus with a Q&A, and there'll be time for audience questions at the end, too. Um, so stay tuned. Um, at the, uh, th this talk, um, the AWS reInvent talks, uh, get prepared uh, for all speakers uh, pretty long in advance. So in the spring of this year, um, there was a little bit of a side project of trying to understand uh, the history of monitoring or kind of where we came from. And it turns out that all of the IBM System 360 manuals have actually been scanned or online. Um, and so the, the really uh, interesting question was, well, how has uh, monitoring changed from the late 60s when you were wearing a lab coat looking at a mainframe? And surprisingly, uh, two things stuck out that are mostly the same, uh, at least kind of in practice. One, uh, you want to have uh, visibility into, uh, into different uh, execution paths. So uh, the mainframe does something. You want to know what happens uh, along different paths. Uh, that's still true today. And then uh, in the event of a failure, IBM System 360 would actually print out the entire contents of memory um, for debugging. And so this idea of a stack trace or understanding the state of the program when it failed, uh, that's also true, too. Um, there was some patch card stuff that we obviously no longer use, though. Um, so yes, uh, the workplace has changed. We don't have to wear lab coats anymore. Um, but the architectures themselves um, have obviously evolved very quickly, too. Uh, we're looking at things um, on mobile, edge computing, IoT, uh, per the keynotes announcements today. Um, but I think that same desire or that same necessity uh, as an operator or a developer to know uh, what the state of the program is during its execution, uh, that still is the same uh, many years later. Um, one of the most common patterns we've seen um, our customers uh, migrate to the past few years is, uh, is not a surprising one for anyone here. It's this idea of taking a very large monolithic application. Uh, we see a lot of these written in Java, and you're going to break it apart uh, in, in different ways into either SOA or microservices. Uh, what gets really interesting, though, um, especially with um, the growth in different AWS managed services, is that as you decompose a monolith into different microservices, um, a lot of those components might just be fully managed AWS services, uh, different AI tools, uh, things like Incognito. Um, and I think that's really interesting because uh, even though you might be running your own code, um, that code is now interacting with AWS managed services, and um, the monitoring or visibility requirements are slightly different uh, when you're looking at those interactions. Um, the, other, uh, the other thing that's pretty interesting, too, is that we see more customers uh, be deploying to more than one AWS region. Uh, not necessarily a super surprising trend, uh, but we recently did, um, just last week, a study of everyone using our AWS Lambda integration. And we found that generally people that were using Lambda, uh, uh, different accounts that were using Lambda functions that were monitored with New Relic, uh, were deployed in a single AWS region. Uh, but there was a really interesting percentage of accounts that were deployed um, in many, many regions. Uh, slightly less than 1%, uh, a single account uh, was running um, Lambdas in around nine different AWS regions. So it's really, I think, opening up some really fascinating use cases around people running code in multiple regions around the world uh, for different reasons. And lastly, um, with uh, the improvements we've seen recently to Lambda at Edge, uh, we can now run more complex workloads uh, directly on the Edge uh, in Lambda functions. 
the compute is it getting physically closer to customers, and uh, obviously IoT is kind of an extension of that as well. So globally distributed, it's getting closer to customers, and we're having more components of play with the switch to SOA or microservices. Um, uh, on top of all that, um, the compute workloads themselves are fairly short-lived. Uh, we um, New Relic uh, uh, monitors Docker containers, and we did a study um, in early spring of this year of what's the lifetime of those containers. So how long does the Docker container actually stick around? Um, this is the distribution, sorry for the lack of, of labels on the graph, but it's from one to 100 minutes in one minute buckets. And you can see here uh, from this, uh, this heavy, um, the, the distribution is, um, is uh, very short-lived. Uh, so the median's around a couple minutes. And um, that's really interesting because uh, as people move to these new environments, they're not necessarily doing this, um, they're not necessarily uh, lifting and shifting the existing application architecture into a large container. Uh, it's scaling up and down, and those containers are very short-lived. Uh, so kind of interesting there. Um, all in all, uh, more people tell us or say uh, something along the lines that they're running uh, something that resembles or looks a lot like a very complex distributed system. Uh, this is just uh, the service map. Uh, service maps or uh, diagrams of relationships between services uh, are always good for defending how complex your distributed system is. Uh, Netflix probably has the most famous one. I think they call it the Death Star diagram. This is a much uh, simpler one. But I guess it's the same idea that we have a simple web application here that has a database, it has a mobile web app, uh, but the number of components continues to grow. Um, I think the good news here, uh, and historically, uh, we tend to get better at operating in these kinds of environments. It's not a hopeless situation. Um, uh, people, uh, there, there are certainly challenges in building and designing and operating software that's globally distributed in ephemeral components uh, using hybrid architectures. But generally, um, uh, we know that we do get better at it over time. And I think a really key part of that, and one thing that helps a lot, is having data to actually um, help through that process. And the technical reasons aren't necessarily all that uh, surprising. Um, obviously, having good data and visibility helps with debugging and troubleshooting. Uh, just like IBM System 360, knowing the state of the program when it fails, uh, pretty useful. Um, much earlier in the process, before you're even uh, writing a line of code, uh, having data to validate designs, so based on previous systems, using that operational data to inform the design of next generation or new systems, what actually works, what should we build. Um, reducing defects, uh, catching issues before they become a serious problem, um, and ultimately for the business, uh, using all that to move faster and uh, that, moving faster, gets in this idea of cultural shifts. And that's um, how can the data actually help people work together on a team. And um, the one thing we hear a lot about, and this is uh, very related, related to DevOps, uh, there's this idea of building transparency across teams, having that shared reference point, uh, especially when the components are fairly complex. Um, and moving to this model where decisions are data informed and not necessarily driven by guessing or um, kind of picking the newest trendy framework. Um, one thing that's really important, I think, for people um, in practitioner roles is the ability to have freedom to experiment, try new architectures, try new ways of doing things, uh, but not necessarily being uh, prevented from doing that because there's some uh, you know, white paper that's, that insists that there must, be, um, there must be a single process for doing it correctly. Um, and lastly, we get to the kind of more of the post-mortem uh, situations 
uh, where when things do break, that uh, it's not necessarily the fault of one individual or one change. Um, it's a complex system. Uh, there's, there's really no, um, no blame that can be associated with one person. So between uh, all that, I, I think we get to this idea, in order to get to that good data, in order to actually understand what these workloads are doing, regardless of whether they run in Lambda or um, a Kubernetes cluster, uh, how do we actually understand uh, what it's doing? And I think uh, instrumentation is a really key part of that. Um, the, the really interesting question and, um, and the thing that I've been working on, especially with AWS Lambda the past year or so, is, uh, you know, assuming we believe that data is important, I, I think that's, um, that, that's a good place to start, and that instrumentation helps us get better visibility into workloads as they run and new things, uh, specifically in the AWS Lambda environment or um, with different uh, emerging microservice architectures. Uh, Fargate, obviously, is the newest one uh, as of this morning. Um, how do we actually make that code observable? Uh, observable? How do we actually know what it does and, and how it works? Um, we've kind of broken it down into three different requirements. And the first one, of course, is that there are different data types available for these different systems. And uh, logging is great, metrics are great, traces are useful. Um, but over-reliance on one, um, we find, typically misses um, some opportunities in actually understanding how the system works. Uh, a good example would be metrics. So if you want to answer the question, um, is my response time slower this week or last week, metrics are great for answering that question. You have events with a measurement over some time series, and you can answer that pretty easily if you're measuring response time in the first place. Uh, logs, of course, the raw human-readable machine data, uh, useful for debugging. So if the database won't start on a server, uh, you'll inevitably be looking at logs. And traces, um, and traces, I think, are especially interesting um, with Lambda and different microservice architectures because they're actually establishing a relationship between events on different systems. Um, so it can answer things like, what are the dependencies? Or even for a single request for a single service, what's the breakdown in time between uh, different methods and different external calls? And I think the combination of all three of those um, some people have called these the, uh, the three golden data types of observability. Um, I think using all three and deciding which, uh, what, what the balance is between the three can be really useful in understanding uh, what's actually happening. Um, the difficulty, of course, is that if you have a new modern microservice you built from scratch um, with this mindset, in mi with this mindset um, you might have really good observability into a single service. Um, but obviously, it's more than just back-end components, especially as we look at things like edge computing and eventually IoT. Uh, so you have mobile and browser applications talking to multiple applications that might be running in different containers or different operating systems inside an EC2 instance. And then that, in, in turn, uh, is probably interacting with lots of different AWS managed services. Um, so uh, having visibility into only one of these components uh, doesn't really tell the entire story. Um, so it's having full coverage of all of those different components together. And the last thing, and this is, um, this is kind of interesting too, because um, there's this perception that um, instrumentation, uh, manual instrumentation especially, um, getting full coverage across a large team uh, in different offices around the world is a very slow process. And it's hard to get there, and it requires a lot of tedious work 
And in some, in some cases, uh, if the service is old enough, perhaps the expert on that service you would like visibility into uh, no longer works for the company or has moved on or been promoted to a new project. We, we do hear that a lot. Um, so there's this idea, and I think this is related to this, uh, this practice of observability, um, that instrumentation should be built into everything you run and build. And um, some of our largest customers in New Relic have actually um, started experimenting with this idea and created uh, dedicated observability engineering teams, which is an interesting way to kind of um, make this a practice uh, company-wide. So across those three things, um, I think it's, uh, it's a good, uh, it's, it's a good uh, point to um, kind of pivot to AWS Lambda itself. Uh, so I've talked a lot, about, a lot at this point around you know, metrics, logs, traces, um, observability, uh, how that works, uh, why that matters. Um, I think it's important to actually back that up with, uh, with an example here. And uh, AWS Lambda is a specifically interesting one uh, because of the constraints of the runtime environment. And um, because AWS manages the infrastructure that Lambda runs on, um, a lot of the practices we have for servers uh, don't necessarily apply directly to Lambda. We can't really look at host CPU percentage for a Lambda function running uh, on the internal Lambda service, for example. Uh, so what does that actually look like? Um, uh, Amazon um, provides um, some observability uh, automatically. Obviously, a set of CloudWatch metrics and logs. Uh, if you log to a Lambda function, it'll appear in CloudWatch. Um, and uh, the metrics, uh, specifically, um, there's a different set uh, depending on the service. Um, we've got uh, invocations and duration and throttles. Um, the one we'll be focusing on for this case study specifically is duration. Uh, the Lambda function is uh, a, fairly large, um, a fairly large one. It's, it's running headless Chrome, as I said earlier. Uh, so what we're really interested in is making sure the duration is, um, is fast. The function is very fast, and it runs quickly, um, obviously, for billing reasons. Uh, the other thing, and I guess um, this week at reInvent, it would be celebrating its, uh, its year anniversary, um, is, of course, AWS, AWS X-Ray, um, which, uh, which is a service uh, provided by AWS that allows you to trace requests between different AWS managed components. Uh, the really interesting thing about X-Ray and the really useful thing if you're going down the path of debugging AWS Lambda performance is X-Ray, when enabled for Lambda, actually exposes some really interesting internal details that you can't actually observe uh, from the perspective of your application code running in Lambda. And uh, the really big one and the really interesting one is this idea of cold starts in AWS Lambda functions. Uh, so when we talk about AWS Lambda performance, there's been a lot written about this. Um, if you go to serverless conferences, uh, there's always a cold start talk. Um, but the really nice thing is uh, if you enable X-Ray for a Lambda function, you actually see how much time is spent in the internal Lambda service. So when the internal Lambda service actually receives the request, and then uh, when your function actually starts executing. And so if you look at these, uh, this, this table, there's um, the AWS Lambda and then AWS Lambda function. If you compare the difference between the two, you can actually measure cold start time. And by that, I mean the latency between when the internal AWS Lambda service receives uh, the request to invoke your function, and then when your code actually starts running. Um, and so there's some internal setup, obviously, that has to be done to create the environment to run your function code. 
um, really interesting and uh, available visually um, in the AWS Lambda, uh, sorry, in the AWS X-Ray UI. Um, if we run this same function again, uh, it looks slightly different. Uh, you notice there's no um, large difference between the internal Lambda service and your function, and that's because uh, it's a warm start. So there's no setup time, and your function initialization code doesn't have to run either. Um, so it was essentially uh, looking at this X-ray trace data they wanted to add, uh, ask a lot of um, questions around performance of this Lambda function. And specifically, uh, we know that uh, we have different numbers in a trace, and a trace happens at a particular time. So if we aggregate the traces, and we know what time the numbers in those traces happened, we can ultimately turn those traces into metrics. And we can answer a couple of really interesting performance questions that uh, before the X-ray integration existed, uh, you really couldn't answer very easily at all. And specifically, the really big one and the important one is where's time actually being spent in the function? But uh, more importantly, especially if you're wondering if cold starts are impacting your performance, uh, is that an issue at all? Are cold starts actually uh, impacting the way people interact with the function? And of course, understanding that over time. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, to actually pull data out of X-Ray, there's an API, like almost every, um, every service this code is on GitHub. Um, there's a AWS, uh, Amazon CloudWatch scheduled event. It pulls data from the X-Ray API every few minutes, and it sends it to New Relic's event, event database, Insights for further analytics. And so after we've pulled in the uh, trace data over a 24-hour period for our Lambda function that's running headless Chrome, uh, we're actually gonna be able to see what that looks like and uh, actually kind of answer some of these, these questions we had around performance. And if we actually look at the data and we write a, a few queries around it, uh, we see a couple interesting things right off the bat. Uh, first of all, um, the Lambda function itself, um, the, uh, the first graph here, it's on a, a scale of zero to five seconds. So our Lambda function is obviously much, much slower than the internal Lambda service. Not surprisingly, uh, you know, kudos to the Lambda engineering team. Uh, the Lambda service is frequently very, very fast. Uh, in this case, most of the time is spent in your function itself or in this function. Um, from there, uh, we can answer, we can ask the question, uh, we know how often cold starts happen whenever this function is invo uh, invoked over a 24-hour period. Uh, does that happen very frequently? Uh, are we actually hitting performance issues with the Lambda function? And if we look at the number of um, initializations that are non-zero, so this is the number of initializations from traces that actually have a cold start happening, it's very, very low. So for this Lambda function, uh, thousands of invocations, cold starts only happened around 1.5% of all, all requests. Uh, we can then look into the timing information. So for those 1.5% uh, of function invocations that actually did have a cold start, uh, how long did it take to actually initialize my code, so my, my code that I'm responsible for in the Lambda function? And if we graph that over the same time period, we see two peaks one around 200 milliseconds and one around 500 milliseconds. But the interesting thing about that and why we've gone so deep into how long that takes is we wanted to answer the question, you know, in some cases, this Lambda function, my code takes up to five seconds to, in it, to uh, actually run. Uh, is that five second duration actually being significantly impacted by, say, my, my code slowly initializing? And because it's only taking 200 or 500 milliseconds in the worst case, we can say, uh, it's, it's fairly unlikely. Um, so uh, looking at that and uh, kind of looking at that analysis, we're like, well, if we want to optimize the performance of the code running the Lambda function, uh, it's not cold starts, it's not the internal Lambda service, 
it's, uh, it's our function code itself. And because it's the Chrome binary, so an application that was ultimately written to run on desktops, uh, the question was, well, maybe it's under-provisioned with memory. And it turns out, if we run the same analysis again, so we look at the distribution of duration for, for the function code, um, it does, not surprisingly, get faster if we give it more memory. Um, so just over a gigabyte of memory from 768 megabytes, uh, it does get faster. You see the, the distribution shift to the, uh, the left there. Uh, this gets to a, a really counterintuitive and really interesting point, though. By increasing the memory of the Lambda function, this actually decreased our bill. So because AWS Lambdas build in 100 millisecond increments, we made the function faster by giving it more memory. But we, we made the function uh, fast. Basically, the function got so much faster that it lowered the bill because it was just executing more, more quickly. Um, so it's, it's this kind of counterintuitive point that wasn't at all clear to me uh, when I was first uh, kind of working with Lambda that uh, more resources, more memory, doesn't necessarily mean your bill will get higher. If your code actually executes much faster, uh, it's likely your bill will go down. Uh, so a, a really, um, really interesting point around performance tuning, and because it impacts your bill, I think it also underscores for, um, for complex functions that run a lot, um, potentially a lot of cost savings there as well to kind of do this tuning in the first place. Um, I want to uh, kind of wrap that up um, with a few um, just a, a few high-level lessons, and then uh, we'll, we'll jump into Q&A with Marcus. Um, but I think, uh, you know, from this case study, uh, we were able to at least explore some of these ideas uh, with real data. Um, that instrumentation, uh, whether it was custom instrumentation we built with our serverless stuff that pulled in X-ray traces and then data analytics, or uh, what's built in with X-ray, um, it was looking at different metrics, uh, different trace data, and also logs during development to figure out what was actually happening. And then um, once all that was in place, uh, we put it into a solution that allowed us to really explore that. Uh, we did not know going in or putting the data in what exactly we wanted to know from the data. It was only after we explored it that this kind of insight came out in the first place. So it's that, it's that, um, that transition of going from observability to having the instrumentation to actually being able to answer it and explore interesting questions. And um, from there, I think uh, we'll, we'll uh, invite Marcus Irvin up from Scripps Networks, and uh, we'll be discussing uh, his recent uh, AWS Lambda project. We'll give Marcus a hand. Thanks, yeah. Ben. Yeah, thanks, Marcus. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Hope everybody's having a good event. Yeah, absolutely. So, Marcus, uh, I know you just recently um, uh, and successfully uh, deployed to production a fairly large AWS Lambda project. Uh, I was curious, though, um, just uh, what, what are you currently working on and uh, you know, what do you do with Scripps? Yeah, sure. So, uh, like Clay said, I work at Scripps Networks. You might not be uh, familiar with Scripps Networks, but I'm sure you're familiar with our brands. We own uh, Food Network, HGTV, Travel Channel, Junior's Kitchen, and a few other things. Um, I'm an architect and I manage a team uh, that, that builds, that's focused on APIs. Uh, for a long time, that was really focused on building uh, APIs for our, our, our mobile uh, applications. In the last couple of years, we've sort of branched out. We've, we're, uh, we're doing a lot with like voice and uh, Facebook Messenger bots and et cetera, et cetera. And from there, we started wanted to leverage the work that we did on mobile and kind of start building more of a microservice architecture to, 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 to be able to share some of, the, some of that work that we do. That's great. So how long have you been using uh, Amazon Web Services? 
Uh, at Scripps, we've been using him for probably about five or six years, and I've, I've been using it for, for a little bit longer than that. All right, and so tell me about like, your, your very first Lambda project. Uh, I know you just uh, implemented a fairly large system, but how, kind of how did you get started? Yeah, the first time that I used Lambda was a couple of years ago. We were, uh, we were real building a new version of our, of our Food Network um, um, uh, mobile app, and we were using API Gateway, and we needed to do some uh, custom authorization. And, and API Gateway supports uh, using Lambda uh, to, to, to do authorization on every request, and that was the, the first time that we used Lambda, and it was super successful. All right, and kind of fast forward to the past several months, you've been working on uh, a fairly new service. Uh, can you kind of describe uh, what it does and uh, what were the, some of the reasons you decided to kind of use serverless for this new service? Yeah, sure. So it's, it's, a, it's actually an, an old service called, called Recibox. It's been around for, I think, going on 10 years or so. Uh, it, was, it was built and uh, maintained by a, a third-party vendor for a long time, and it's the service that, that is used on, across our mobile apps, but also across the websites for saving and allowing users to view their saved recipes. Uh, so pretty simple in, in, in concept. Uh, but, we, but we decided that uh, we wanted to bring this in-house. It was a service that was really important to us, uh, and like I said, it was, it was maintained by a third-party vendor, so it was hard for us to get changes made to it. We had a lot of enhancements that we wanted to make, and as we're exploring new platforms, we wanted to, uh, to, to, to be able to, to enhance it. Um, so we, we, we thought this could be a good candidate for, for serverless. It's, you know, at its core, it's relatively simple, and so we started doing some POCs around it. And, uh, and we decided to go, go, go all in on it. That's great. Um, so what's the, uh, what's the high-level architecture of the recipe box service? Um, you know, how did you decide to, to build this, and what did the initial architecture look like? Yeah, sure. So we, uh, like I said, there was an existing uh, recipe box service. So we wanted to stand up the new recipe box uh, in, in parallel. And, 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 and rather than do a sort of a big bang uh, migration, we wanted to move over apps gradually from the old service to the new service. So we, we, it's, it's running in parallel, and then it, it, we keep it in sync, uh, which adds a lot of complexity to it. So at, at, at the core, it's you know, a few lambdas and an API gateway and some DynamoDB tables. But the, the parts that are keeping it in sync add a little bit of complexity. So we have SQS queues. Uh, we have uh, uh, lambdas processing messages from the SQS queues. We have uh, a step function that we use to do uh, the migration uh, part. And uh, yeah, those are the main things. That's, that's really interesting about step functions for the migration. And, and you mentioned they were running in parallel, too. Mm -hmm. So I mean, uh, what was the process like? Um, and I, I, we were talking earlier. It's now fully in production. Is that is that correct? It's fully in production, okay. although we haven't moved all of our consumers over to it yet. So, so we have a sort of a mix of consumers using the old service and the new service. Yeah, and so that's uh, I think that rollout is pretty interesting too. So how do you um, how do you verify that things were working and uh, you know make sure that it was kind of ready to go 100 uh, percent? Yeah. So uh, we decided to, to, to do it this way. For, for, for a few different reasons. One is we didn't want to have to do a sort of a big bang release and, and, and coordinate amongst a bunch of different teams. Um, and, then, and then the other thing is, is this is allowing us to do migration uh, sort of on demand. So as users access the new, new Rusty box, we're able to run that step function to, to migrate users over it as they're seen. Uh, so, so we didn't have to kind of take on the big data migration up front. That's great. How long did the rollout take? Yeah, so we, we really we built this service and got it into production for our mobile apps in about six months. All right. 
Um, so a lot of people have, uh, have discussed uh, different strategies around local development for Lambda. And you know, there's been a lot of chatter about this. I was kind of very curious you know, how your team managed local development of these functions, especially because you're talking about SQS queues, uh, step functions, Lambda functions. Those aren't necessarily uh, available for you on your local environment. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, is, it is tricky. And I think, I think as an industry, we're still, we're still figuring this out. Uh, but for, for us, we found that, that most of our JavaScript we had it as kind of separate packages that weren't necessarily in, in Lambda, then our Lambdas were, were fairly small as far as just calling out, that, calling out to that, that JavaScript. So we were able to execute you know, the JavaScript that, that accesses the database or maybe puts messages in the queues, kind of execute that locally just against you know, services uh, in the cloud. And then as far as Lambdas go, uh, and, and we use, uh, all of our Lambdas are written in, in JavaScript. And, and as far as uh, you know, Lambda development goes, it's just, it's just a function that you can technically run locally, um, whether it talks to AWS services or, or not. And then also with Lambda, it's really easy and quick to do deploys. So uh, it doesn't take too long for us to test it in the cloud. That's great. And um, you know, part of getting to production, too, is obviously testing as well. Um, so uh, you, know, you mentioned it's, it's easy to kind of run the functions locally because mm -hmm. it's just a JavaScript uh, function. Uh, but how do you test before you actually do those frequent deploys? Yeah, so we. Uh, you know, we do a lot, a lot of unit testing uh, with just you know, your standard JavaScript unit testing frameworks. Um, but I found with, with Lambda and with serverless that there's so much integration work that, that really you end up with a lot more, or you should end up with a lot more integration tests than, than maybe a traditional app. So I think that's, that's one thing that we really kind of focused on is, is writing tests that not only just kind of mock out all AWS services, but run against AWS services. That's great. Um, are you using uh, function tagging or versioning? Uh, we are not using uh, function tagging or versioning. We, well, we are, we are tagging, tagging our functions. We, we tag all of our functions are deployed using um, CloudFormation, and we tag all of our CloudFormations with the application, with the environment, and with the component type. Um, so, so yeah. Uh, that's, that's interesting. And you, know, you mentioned uh, deploying using CloudFormation. Is that something that's done uh, manually or using a, a CI-CD pipeline? Yeah, so we've, I mean, we've been using CloudFormation for all of our applications for, 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 for at least a few years. And we, so we have a lot of automation already around, around CloudFormation, uh, mostly, mostly written in, in Ruby. Uh, but then we have that run in our, in our Jenkins pipeline. Uh, what else is the uh, Jenkins pipeline responsible for? So uh, yeah, every time we, we deploy our code to master, you, or, or really any branch, Jenkins picks it up, runs the tests, and then for master, it'll go ahead and and run the integration tests, and then, uh, and then, and then deploy it into production. That's great. Uh, so now that we're in production, uh, the, the obvious question is, uh, how do you monitor it? Yeah, yeah, great question. Again, this is, I think, still another area um, that the industry is still figuring out, and the tooling is maybe, maybe lagging a little behind, but, but getting there. And, and you talked about a lot of interesting things, uh, things just now. Uh, probably the, the, the thing that's been most useful to us is you know, we have a, our, our application has about uh, I think around 15 or so lambdas, um, and, and each of those lambdas is writing you know, logs to, to CloudWatch logs. And how do we how do we get to those logs to do any sort of diagnosing? Um, so probably the most important thing for us is to get those logs into a log aggregation uh, service. Uh, we use Scalar, but you can use Sumo Logic or even an Elk stack. Um, so that's, that's probably the, the main thing. We also use we use New Relic, uh, New Relic's infrastructure service. Uh, pulls in all of, its, all of our CloudWatch metrics and pulls it into uh, to New Relic where we could 
uh, you know, dashboards and, and, and do alerting there where we're already kind of used to, used to doing. We've played around with X-Ray a little bit, but we haven't, haven't done a whole lot with it. I feel like it's, at least in my experience, it still has a little bit, a little bit to go, but it's definitely a, a, promising, a promising service. Yeah, and, and you mentioned um, alerting as well. So um, you know, how do you configure alerts, or, or what ultimately wakes you up when it comes to Lambda? You know, luckily, we've been lucky that we haven't had any major, uh, major production issues since, since we launched. But we do have, of course, uh, some loading set up. Uh, we have uh, learning in a few different places still. We have, I mentioned all of our logs go to Scalar, so we do have uh, some alerting there for when, if, if, a, if our logs start showing a lot of errors, uh, we, we have alerts triggered. Inside New Relic, uh, where we already have a lot of our learning for our other applications configured, uh, we do alerts there on, on you know, Lambda metrics, uh, whether or not there's invocation errors or slowness, uh, so we have some of that, uh, that set up as well. That's great. Um, well, I was kind of curious, um, you know, especially since it's reInvent, there's a big focus on um, kind of the, the future of serverless. I, I think we can all look forward to Foreigner's keynote tomorrow. Um, but I'm curious, uh, are you evaluating serverless now for other systems too? And kind of why or why not? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think my team is definitely Bit by the by the serverless bug, um, I, I think the question for us now will be not whether, like whether serverless is a good fit. It's like whether it's not a good fit uh, fit for us. So we've already started uh, a couple of the other small s services that we're that we're doing with with the serverless. So yeah, I think we'll be we'll be doing a lot more next year. Or so that's great. And what's your high level process for determining something, determining whether something's a good fit or not a good fit? I think for us, um, you know, it would be if if, if if we needed to use a lot of just sort of existing code for some reason uh, that, that wouldn't maybe necessarily run on 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 Lambda, our, our team has a lot of uh, a lot of history with using Ruby, which isn't yet hopefully maybe tomorrow. Uh, who knows? <laughs> uh, uh, supported on Lambda, so there could be some some use cases there. But um, yeah, well, I mean, that, and that's I think uh, that brings up an interesting question too. Uh, if any AWS Lambda PMs are in the room, <laughs> uh, what's what would what would you like to see? Or what's on your kind of Lambda wish list for the next few years? Yeah, well, I mentioned I'd love to see some, some, some other language support. I, I love JavaScript, and that's a, that's, a, that's a good language. But we have a lot of, lot of history with Ruby. That would be a, a great language. I think Go is a, an obvious, obvious choice there. Um, I mentioned earlier that we, we do a lot with, with SQS. Uh, the SQS and Lambda integration is a little, little wonky. Um, there's, not, there's not a good event being triggered when messages are in your queue. You have to Kind of use a use a CloudWatch of uh, timed events to, to pull your, your log, or use a CloudWatch metric to trigger it. So I think there could be some improvement there. Yeah, that's great. Um, I think at this point uh, we have a few minutes left for uh, just general uh, audience Q and A. Uh, we've got uh, two people with uh, microphones that are that are happy to run around. Um, if you raise your hand, if you have any questions uh, for Marcus um, about Lambda or um, or about serverless, uh, we're happy to uh, to answer. To see if, if anyone has any questions, what, uh, what are you looking for next year in serverless? What are your predictions for 2018? Well, I think uh, I think we're going to see a lot more more tooling, a lot, lot, lot of vendors adding more and more support. Uh, I think because I think we're still sort of lagging behind their uh, other things, uh, I, and I, I'm excited to see what, what gets announced tomorrow. I think there'll probably be some cool stuff that comes out of that. That's great. Uh, any, uh, any other questions? Oh, I think I see uh, hands here. I was wondering, uh, uh, you talked about the, the serverless architecture, but 
uh, what if you had built your big application without serverless? What would you expect to um, have been the difficulty for this uh, service, or maybe in cost, the difference? I'm sorry, can you repeat the, the question? What is the difference, do you think, if you had built your um, big service uh, without serverless? Yeah, I think we're definitely seeing, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to compare, but I think we're definitely seeing cost savings. I mean, our, our Lambda costs are, are way cheaper than, you know, our EC2 instances normally would have, would have been. You know, we're using DynamoDB, which, which can be expensive, um, but, but that you, can, you have databases in your list and that either. So I, I do think there's, there's cost savings that, that we're seeing. Um, also, I think there's uh, one thing I noticed with serverless is you have a lot less code. I'm always kind of surprised at like sometimes how little code we have for doing such big things because we're making use of so many AWS uh, services to do the heavy lifting. Yeah, I was curious. Um, I've got quite a bit of experience um, writing Lambda functions and serverless applications. And w one of the things that we've run into quite a bit is um, kind of what, what logging framework to use. We, we use JavaScript, too. And you know, there's a, a plethora of different logging uh, SDKs that you can use. Uh, but the concern has always been, um, even with you know, tree shaking and stuff like that, getting some code bloat into your functions. So we've kind of stripped that stuff out and, and just used a vanilla um, you know, logging pattern. So I'm, I'm just curious to know if, if on your team you've uh, established any sort of like best practices or standards around how you log and instrument your code. Yeah, so, uh, so we're using, I, I don't remember the package. It's a fairly lightweight package. Um, that basically does your logging in a, uh, you know, just, just a simple JSON uh, log, but then you could also set up sort of at the beginning some metadata that you want attached to each log message, so that's kind of nice. So at the beginning of the, uh, you know, at the event, we, we could say that, oh, this is a, maybe a user ID and an invocation ID and, and add those to, the, to that so that it's not quite bloated with all of your log messages. Your log messages could be just specific for what, for what it was, yeah. Um, is it okay to ask uh, you a question, Clay? Uh, sure, yeah. Okay, so I'm just, um, the observability that we have now with X-Ray and New Relic and other tools, it, it seems a little, well, I don't, it seems a little basic to me, uh, sorry to say that. It feels like it uh, needs a lot more features and a lot more depth, and I'm just wondering, is that going to come from New Relic or maybe from AWS, and what are some of the key features that you think are going to come down the pipe? Yeah, no, that's, that's an excellent question. And um, I think my, my initial response is this is a, this is a conversation uh, we're deeply interested in having with customers like yourself. Um, we think, you know, uh, we agree that we're early on this kind of journey to serverless and we want to get greater observability. I think everyone agrees on that. Um, but we're really curious and actually we're currently interviewing a lot of our customers to essentially discover what's, what's on everyone's wish list. And so uh, it's, it's a conversation we'd like to have. And in terms of New Relic, it's, um, it's something we definitely want to be a part of. I'll, I'll add, yeah. add something there, though, that I, I do think uh, that, that, yeah, the tool, I think tooling is definitely kind of lagging, or, or not where it needs to be. But I, I do think with serverless, there's so many more metrics that are available through, through CloudWatch, even though they're hard to consume and maybe to, to, to work with right now. But as far as from the observability standpoint, serverless, I think, is really uh, really ahead of like sort of traditional applications. Uh, 
from, from, from what's, what's possible. All right, I think, I think that's uh, it in terms of questions. Uh, or is everyone, uh... all right, well, hey, thank you very much, and uh, thanks again for Marcus. Yeah, thanks, thanks for Marcus. Yeah. Yeah.